your dreams. Hello and welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. My name is John DeLynn. As always, it's a, indeed a pleasure to have you with us. We very much appreciate uh, all of your emails and uh, your posts to the Mormon Stories blog. We appreciate the community and the support. And um, it, it seems like we're getting up to a thousand listeners per episode now. So it's it's very exciting to know that some of the stuff that we're doing is uh, is having an impact uh, with with many of you. Um, we hope that some of you were able to tune in and listen to the podcast um, with uh, Darren Smith. Um, for those of you who were able to listen, Darren uh, talked to us quite a bit about his experience uh, growing up in the church um, as a black man and um, and his time uh, working at, at Brigham Young University. And during that podcast, I promised you all that we would do a deep dive on the issue of um, blacks, uh, the LDS church, and the priesthood. And um, the two guests, if I could sort of cherry pick two guests uh, that I could have to speak on this issue, I think that the two guests that we have on today would be the two that I'd pick with maybe Armand Moss to do some commentary afterwards. And, and I've already got Brother Moss's uh, consent to do that if, if it ends up being necessary. But without any further ado, I'd like to introduce my two guests. The first being Darius Gray. Darius, welcome. Thank you, John. And the second being Margaret Young. Margaret, thanks for coming on. Glad to do it. For those of you who don't know, <clears throat> around 1971, and we're going to get into this, um, President Joseph Fielding Smith of the Mormon Church created um, an organization called the Genesis Group. And the Genesis Group was an organization founded uh, to do outreach and to be a fellowship and community for um, black members of the, of the Mormon Church. And Darius Gray was actually um, called as the first counselor of that group back in 1971. Um, pr prior to that, uh, he had worked as a reporter for KSL News. Um, he's also been involved in many important initiatives, including a project that many of you may not have heard of called the Friedman Bank Project, um, where he and Marie Taylor were directors and founders. It was sort of a name extraction program um, for uh, black Americans here in the United States. Uh, we can talk about that a little more. I'm probably not doing it justice. But Darius has also received the Martin Luther King Award um, by the regional uh, NAACP for his work in, in black affairs. Um, and he and Margaret together are co-authors of a trilogy called Standing on the Promises. And um, we'll talk a little bit about that during the presentation. But Darius, it's just an honor to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and quickly, also, uh, last but in no way least, Margaret Young. Um, is also, as I mentioned, co-author of this book, uh, this this trilogy that we've talked about. She's also a, a professor of English uh, at Brigham Young University, so she's on the faculty. Is it adjunct, Margaret? I, I am part-time. I, okay. I teach. I have this luxurious position of teaching two classes a year, one fall, one winter. So yeah, I'm And you're also a mother and a grandmother and a wife I am. and a writer yeah. and a singer, and I could go on and on. I, I should also mention just briefly that Darius and Margaret are working on a book, I'm sorry, working on a documentary together dealing with um, uh, the history of blacks and, and the Mormon church and priesthood, and we'll probably get into that as well, but I should mention that uh, at the outset. Anyway, uh, without any further ado, both of you, thank you so much for coming on. Again, thank you. 
I'm excited to see what we do, what we're doing today, what we're going to talk about. This is new to me. Yeah. Well, uh, let me just start right in there because one of the interesting paradoxes um, that that I um, experienced after doing Darren Smith's podcast was to realize that, um, you know, there's always multiple sides to the story. And I, I very much valued Darren and, and his story. I think there was much rich and interesting perspective because that was his perspective. And Mormon stories is not so much about telling people who's right or who's wrong, but instead it's just letting people tell their stories. But the Absolutely. truth is, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Margaret. Um, but, no, but, no, no, it, but, but at the same time, um, you know, Margaret, you're also faculty at, at BYU, and w- one of the things that's probably worth mentioning is that just recently, Darius, you and Margaret were asked to come to BYU to present on this very issue. Is that true? That's not totally true. Darius was asked to present on the issue of blacks and the priesthood. I, I am always happy to take a supportive role. Uh, Darius packs a lot of power. I, right. I just got to be the mouthpiece, but right. we prepared the, uh, the presentation together. But uh, I was the mouthpiece, and that's you know, and that's that's an interesting paradox because on the one hand, Darren feels very strongly that um, you know part of part of uh, the decision to not let him, let him continue teaching was because of his outspokenness around these issues. We don't need to get into that because that's how he feels, and that's you know, his perspective, but it's also, you know, an interesting paradox to note that, you know, Darius, you recently were invited to come to BYU to speak, um, from what I've heard, very directly and very candidly about um, the history of blacks in the Mormon church. And so... It it was a surprise, especially since uh, the topic was not uh, suggested by uh, me or us, Margaret and I, but it was suggested by uh, Brigham Young University personnel. And uh, they were open to that. They requested it, and uh, we were happy to address it. Yeah. And it was a good, good crowd that came to hear. I know that some religion faculty had told their students that they ought to go here, and my husband and I both asked our classes to, to attend it also. So a really good audience and excellent, thoughtful response from the students and, and faculty members who were there. And that's sort of what we're here to talk about today, is sort of maybe a, a reproduction and hopefully... Uh, even a, a further drill down on on that talk. Is that right? Yes. So, so Darius, without any further ado, why don't you lead us through your discussion? And I'm hoping I have the PowerPoint presentation that you'll be speaking from. And if I'm able to pull a little magic together, I hope to reproduce for my listeners something called a, a screencast or a videocast, where actually, if, if my listeners want to, they can actually watch this presentation with the slides in synchronicity. So uh, oh, I love it when technology works. The problem is it doesn't always right. work. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I'm glad it's going to be on your end to make it work <laughs> and not on ours. And it's nice that we have a little more time. Darius really only had 40 minutes to present with it, with the material that is so rich. And yes. that's not really quite enough time to to give everybody their due to, to talk about Elijah Abel and some of the other Black Latter-day Saints of course, with uh, African Americans being part of the church from 1832, and that'll be my role. I think more is to add some of the stories and and uh, personalities that come into it. 
And I think it's important to start with just the very, very broad history that um, the LDS Church had its beginnings in 1830, and uh, we have records of blacks uh, being members of the LDS Church from 1832 forward. And just the fact that there has been a continuous black presence in the LDS Church since its very beginnings uh, is significant, and it's often surprising to people to know that. Uh, so often uh, the LDS Church has been considered a white person's church, and uh, it is not. It is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. It is available to all and has always been available to all men and women, regardless of ethnicity or race. Hmm. Now, with that said, the topic that um, I was given was the history of blacks in the LDS priesthood, and indeed that's uh, where we start. Back in 1999, which seems so long ago now, as we were getting ready to head into the year 2000, um, the Church News conducted a poll to determine which events of the 1900s, of the last uh, 100 years, were to be uh, the top stories of the past century. And uh, it was interesting, as they conducted that survey, the number one story by far was the revelation extending the priesthood to all worthy males. And uh, in talking to the editors after the event, uh, the, the survey, I was told that number two on the list wasn't even close. Hmm. So we're talking about a very significant issue, something that uh, touched the hearts and minds of uh, thousands of uh, Utah and church personnel across the country. The question was, in the presentation, where to begin? Uh, do we talk about the old history, the 1800s and moving forward, or do we talk about more recent history? Um, something uh, in 1978, the priesthood revelation. Uh, do we talk about publications, things written by past um, general authorities, presidents, and um, members of the Twelve, or do we talk about current day? And it seemed appropriate to really start off with the news of the current day, the most current, being a statement offered by President Hinckley during the priesthood session of General Conference. Um, and I have here a quote uh, um, of what President Hinckley said, quote, As a person grows older, he becomes a softer touch, has a kindlier manner. As this has happened to me, I've wondered why it is there is so much hatred and conflict in the world, so much pride and jealousy. Racial strife still raises its ugly head, even among church members. There are reports of racial slurs and denigrating remarks among us. This is unacceptable. I remind you that no man who makes disparaging remarks concerning those of another race can, sit, can consider himself a true disciple of Christ. President Hinckley continues, How can any man holding the priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, arrogantly assume that he is eligible for the priesthood, whereas another, who lives a righteous life, but whose skin is of a different color, is ineligible? We rejoiced in the 1978 revelation in the temple. There was no doubt in my mind or those of my associates that what was revealed was the will of God. I have often spoken of the diversity among us and taught that each of us is a son or a daughter of God. And President Hinckley concluded by saying, There is no basis for racial hatred among the priesthood. If you have such feelings, go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. 
Uh, end of quote. I think that's a powerful statement by a, a living prophet of God. Yes. As we continued with the presentation, um, we presented a partial chronology pertaining to blacks in the LDS Church, and uh, a couple of URLs are provided uh, for those who are able to see it on your site, John. Yes, and I'll, I'll make sure and make those available on the blog as well. And on the first one, uh, I, I want to point out that it is not one that um, we have created, Margaret and I. It is just one of many that uh, you can find on the Internet. And while it is provided here because it provides some information, there are numerous inaccuracies uh, on that site. But if someone is going to do research, they need to have a starting spot. And this is as good a starting spot as you're going to find. Uh, just know that you need then to check on each of the uh, uh, points listed for accuracy uh, because there are inaccuracies. And the second URL is one that you can find at the ldsgenesisgroup.org website. And uh, it has to do with the true meaning of the word black in the LDS scriptures. And uh, that was one done by Marvin Perkins, and we highly recommend that one. Okay. And w once you access uh, the one by Marvin Perkins, which is on the Genesis, uh, the Genesis Group newsletter, that resource is available for anybody. Anyone all over the world can access the, the Genesis website. And we encourage anybody who listens to this podcast to make others aware of it. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a part of keeping it current, and we work very hard. There are three of us who work really hard to make sure that we've got up-to-date material, and it, it really has become a wonderful resource, including the archives. If you look at what we've done in the past, we've got some great stuff. And and so let me just give the URL for those who aren't able to view it but can hear it. It's www.ldsgenesisgroup, all one word, ldsgenesisgroup.org forward slash, and then how to reach, one word, how to reach, dot html. And I, I think that would be beneficial for your listeners and your viewers. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll, we'll post that as well on the blog. Thank you. Moving forward, um, 1830 was the year that the Book of Mormon was first publish, published, and that book uses a dark skin motif as a sign of sinfulness by the Lamanites. Um, quoting in 1 Nephi 5.21, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon the Lamanites, close quote. And so we have questions of race and the coloring of skin and ethnicity uh, that some might deduce from what they find in scriptures. Darius, do, yes. does, does the current Book of Mormon use the term blackness, or is that just in the 1830 version? Or do the you... current Book of Mormon does use the term blackness. Okay. The change that was made was, and actually it was the change Joseph Smith himself made, where it uh, in later scriptures it said, referred to white and delightsome people, and Joseph Smith made the change to pure and delightsome. And when the scriptures were redone, they returned to what Joseph Smith had changed it to, rather than uh, the original white and delightsome. But the scripture okay. that Darius just referred to does say black. Okay, great. And for our listeners, that's First Nephi 5.21. Moving forward in the presentation... Uh, July 1831, Joseph Smith, Jr. identifies Negroes as the lineage of Ham. 
uh, quote, the first Sabbath after our arrival in Jackson County, Brother W.W. W. Phelps preached to a Western audience, wherein were present specimens of all the families of the earth, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, quite a respectable number of Negroes, descendants of Ham, close quote. And that's taken from the history of the church, 1190. Hmm. Okay. Of course, any anybody, any student of history knows that we're in the when we're talking about Mormonism, we're in the Second Great Awakening, where people are becoming very aware of slavery. We're really setting up for the the Civil War. The Nat Turner Revolt has happened in 1831. Uh, slavery is a huge issue. It will be one of the issues that will cause the expulsion of the saints from Missouri. So, uh, not really surprising that it would be mentioned here by Joseph Smith. Sure. And of course, uh, being the prophet that he was, uh, in 1832, Joseph Smith, Jr. predicted an insurrection to begin in South Carolina, which slaves would rise up against their masters, and great bloodshed would result. And, of course, we can find that citation in DNC 87. Okay. In that same year, 1832, we have an early black member by the name of Elijah Abel being baptized in the church. Uh, in those early years, there uh, was a dispute over Elijah's exact ethnicity. Uh, some reports have him as white, which seems impossible given later actions regarding him. But he was a biracial man. But uh, using the words of my father, uh, actually not of my father, but a woman of my father's acquaintance, um, even a chicken know another chicken. <laughs> and it was fairly clear that Brother Abel was a person of color. The uh, census of 1870, the first year that blacks were listed as human beings on the census and not as property, um, Brother Abel is listed as a uh, Negro. And then in later censuses, he is listed as a uh, mulatto. So his ethnicity was fairly clear. Okay. Now, a lot of, a lot of members don't know that uh, this is a huge, one of the, I'd say, 10 or 20 biggest revelations to a lifelong member of the church. Just the simple fact that 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 not only blacks were members of the church, but, but as you'll mention later, that they actually, at least one or two, did receive the priesthood in Joseph yeah. Smith's day. Well, in fact, we'll find that the number is greater than one or two, or three or four or five. Uh, there were... Uh, black members of the church, yes, black male and female members uh, who were actively engaged from the earliest years, and several of those male members uh, coming forward in time did indeed hold the priesthood. Hmm. Okay. And Elijah Abel worked on the Kirtland Temple and was washed and anointed in the Kirtland Temple, so his initiatory rites were performed. Uh, of course, the endowment didn't happen until the Nauvoo Temple and Elijah Abel had left Nauvoo before the endowment was given. I've always wondered what would have happened if he had been there when the endowment was given, and I believe he received it along with everybody else. He was a dear friend of the Smith family. He received a patriarchal blessing under, under the hands of Father Smith and was at Father Smith's bedside when, when Father Smith died. Uh, so very strong attachments with the Smith family and a deeply respected man. Do we know who actually ordained him to the priesthood? We, we, it appears, and, and actually Darius will cover this, I think maybe we'll just let him get to it. Okay. <laughs> well, 
we can jump forward in time. Go ahead. No, no, no. Let's let's follow the slide deck. Let's go with uh, the 1833. Well, in 1833, uh, W. W. Phelps in the Evening and the Morning Star uh, published an article, "Free People of Color." And uh, it expresses an anti-slavery viewpoint and outlines in that uh, article uh, procedures for the migration of free blacks to Missouri. And the quote is, so long as we have no special rule in the church as to people of color, let prudence guide, close quote. So in 1833, we are indeed looking for black members to come into the church as long as they are free persons of color. But we're being cautious because Missouri was a slave state. And the tensions, as we know, were quite high in that state towards Latter-day Saints, in part because we were, as a church, open to the participation of black members. Right. But it was just after that, 1834, that we really have the beginning of what we've come to call the priesthood restriction. According to a brother by the name of Zebedee Coltrane, as he recalled in a conversation in 1879, some 45 years later, Brother Joseph Smith, in the presence of Brother Coltrane, received a revelation that blacks were not to be ordained to the priesthood. And this is a significant point in the change in our history. And again, that's Brother Zebedee Coltrane recalling in 1879 a conversation that he says took place in 1834. Okay. And Brother Coltrane goes on to say, quote, Brother Joseph kind of dropped his head and rested it on his hand for a minute and then said, Brother Zebedee is right, for the Spirit of the Lord saith the Negro has no right nor cannot hold the priesthood. Close quote. And so this is being passed on, and it is because of that comment that uh, we have some difficulty today and have had for some while. Okay. Although the comment doesn't become, it doesn't make that until 1879, and that, that's going to become very important as we go down the timeline. Yeah, because the very next couple slides uh, offer something quite interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, the Prophet Joseph Smith, November 1835. Um, Brother Joseph, Brother Joseph reaffirms his earlier proclamation that elders are to avoid going unto slaves or servants unless granted permission by their masters. It was very specific. Uh, there was not a prohibition about teaching blacks, but about going unto slaves or servants okay. without permission. Okay, that makes sense. It does to me. Yeah. And in the earlier scriptures... Um, the Doctrine and Covenants, 1835 to 1839, various sections of the DNC present a universalistic, I can't even talk today, friends. <laughs> Universalistic. Thank you. <laughs> View of the gospel being for all people and races, and all people being equal in the gospel. Again, God has never been a respecter of persons. Uh, he was not before, and he is not now. And uh, so the scriptures would be expected to represent that same thing. Right. Okay. March 1836, Elijah Abel, who was baptized in 1832, this biracial man, Elijah Abel is ordained an elder by Joseph Smith, Jr., hmm. according to Eunice Kinney in her letter called My Testimony of the Latter-day Work. So Brother Abel, um, a black man, um, has his certificate of ordination dated 
3rd of March, 1836. Okay. And, and that's something that a lot of people raise questions. Joseph Smith ordained him, and we don't have the, the primary source on that. We do have the Eunice Kinney report, but it's absolutely without question that Joseph Smith was aware of the ordination. And as I mentioned, Father Smith gave Elijah his patriarchal blessing, and in that blessing it says, Thou hast been ordained an elder and shalt be protected against the powers of the adversary. Uh, that patriarchal blessing was read in the famous meeting of 1879 where the policy was, was really kind of canonized. And uh, there, there, there was no question that he had been ordained an elder. So do the, do the certificate of ordination or, or the patriarchal blessing survive to this day? Yes, I, I have a copy of, of the patriarchal blessing. Okay. I don't have the certificate of ordination. Uh, they do have Elijah Abel listed as one ordained to the office of the 70th. If you go to church archives, the church okay. historical department, that's that's there in 1836. But but the but the evidence that Joseph Smith Jr. actually performed the ordination is in um, this uh, journal or or, or writing for Eunice Kinney. Kinney. Uh-huh. Okay, oh, great. And there's a there's another account that we get to later that substantiates that. But in terms of having the actual certificate, I have not seen it. Now, I, but there are other certificates that are there as well. Uh, again, in December of 1836, Elijah Abel is ordained to 70, as Margaret mentioned. And that ordination, surprisingly, is performed by Zebedee Coltrane, Coltrin, hmm. uh, the man who said that uh, in 1834 that Joseph Smith had told him blacks could not hold the priesthood. So we've got a problem here. Right. Got a problem with the dates. Yeah. Well, if not with the dates, with the substance. With the substance, right. yeah. If, if, if he's saying in 1834, Joseph Smith said blacks couldn't hold the priesthood, and then the records show us that in 1836, Zebedee himself ordained Elijah Abel to the office of the 70, got a problem. Okay. Now, I want to I address that, but I, I just have to jump in and ask one question. I, you know, I've experienced some extreme racism in my life, but, you know, j- just occasional. And But you hear stories about the early 1900s or the 1800s with really severe um, cases of, of strong feelings where, you know, people don't even want blacks in the same room, you know, white people, extremely racist. And what, what I'm wondering is, how is it that um, if racism was so prevalent in the 1800s, a, a black man was allowed to be present and even highly participatory um, within the church without it causing, you know, severe turmoil and stress and contention among folks like Brigham Young and others who, if they were as racist as some might claim, um, wouldn't have even tolerated them being in the same room potentially. Do, do you have any sense for why we'll that was... we to Brigham Young, but... But, uh, but I, I'm, I, that yeah, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm mostly asking just about for those who lived with Elijah Abel and Joseph Smith. I mean, was he eating dinner with people? Were they hanging out? And and if so, how was that tolerated? You know, how was it well, tolerated? We we actually do have some details on that. We we uh, we know that Elijah Abel was was welcome in the Smith home. There, there that that is pretty clear. We know that Elijah Abel participated in trying to rescue Joseph Smith when it appeared that he was in harm's way. Um, we also know that when Elijah Abel went on his first miss- mission, he was accused of murdering a woman and five children. Hmm. And he, obviously his life was, was at risk. 
and uh, he eventually was acquitted of, of that accusation. But as we'll get to in the slides, there did come a time where he, he was instructed to preach only to his own people, in other words, only to people of color. But here we maybe should bring in Jane Manning James, who is probably the most famous of our black pioneers. She's portrayed in the new movie that the church has on Joseph Smith. But when Jane and her family, there, there, it was nine members of an African-American family coming from Connecticut and then to Buffalo, New York, and then walking to Nauvoo. And she talks, she doesn't go into detail at all, but she says that when they entered Nauvoo, they were met with much rebuff. Hmm. So uh, we can just imagine what kinds of stares they were getting. Finally, they were directed to the Smith home, and you do get a sense of a lot of egalitarianism in the Smith home, because according to Jane's life story, Emma Smith greets them and says, come in, come in, all of you. And we know that the Manning family is, they've walked 800 miles without a change of clothes. Jane, Jane's trunk was put on a boat that they thought they would be able to take, and then because of their race, they were denied passage. They've, the soles of their shoes have worn out, and they have walked barefoot. So they are invited directly in, in, in a condition where uh, y- you wouldn't imagine that they would feel comfortable sitting on the chairs. But they come in, and then Joseph Smith enters. And again, this is all according to Jane's life story. He immediately welcomes them in, goes to the people who are in the parlor and says, we've got company come, and doesn't say they're black. Just, just we, we've, we've got company come and then sits them down and says, I want to hear all about your journey, and says to Jane, you've been the leader of this little band. Well, according to Jane, uh, her brothers and sisters find work, and Jane is there in the mansion house weeping. Joseph finds her and says, why not crying? And Jane says, all the others have gone and got themselves jobs and and houses, and I have no place to go. And then Joseph talks to Emma and... and, uh, says, here's a girl says she has no place to go. Haven't you a place for her? And Emma replies that she does. And then Jane stays on and is asked by Joseph Smith via Emma. And Emma says, again, this quoting from Jane's history, Emma says that this is at Joseph's bequest, if Jane would like to be adopted as a child into the Smith family. And of course, uh, the adoption practices in the early church are, that's a whole different presentation. But the idea that, that it was not would you like to be our servant for all of eternity, (laughs) but would you like to be adopted to us as our child indicates an openness in the Smith home that that I think is quite exceptional. And she, as she writes, she turned it down. She said, I was so green, and these are her later letters, letters, I was so green that I did not comprehend. And I said I didn't want to be adopted as a child in the family. Hmm. But she had a deep, deep love for Joseph and Emma, and she talks even about uh, plural marriage there. Uh, Very, very fond associations, and we don't have a sense of her being being treated in in a really, um, a way that's much different from, from anybody else. She expresses such deep love for the Smith family. But she is the only one of all of the Manning children who have come to Nauvoo to go with the saints all the way to Salt Lake. And then she becomes a prominent member in Salt Lake who has acquaintance with all of the church presidents from the time of Brigham Young to Joseph F. Smith, and Joseph F. Smith speaks at her funeral. So that just gives you a sense of certainly at the time of Joseph Smith and within the household of Joseph Smith, even though in Nauvoo itself the Manning family meets rebuff, 
within the household of Joseph Smith, they are they are treated with dignity. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize that slavery was probably the single largest issue uh, on on the nation's consciousness. Um, it split families. Uh, those who were pro-slave and those who were anti. And, of course, when you're dealing with slavery, you're talking about race. And there would have been those in the church who were uh, abolitionists and opposed to slavery. And as we know, there were those who were slaveholders uh, who were members of the church. And so we are representative of the larger community. And uh, we had some who were comfortable with diversity and others who were not. And uh, hopefully today we've gotten a lot further than we were back then. But for an Elijah Abel or Jane Manning James, they were in the community, the church community. They were participants. And I'm sure some accepted them very openly, as did the Smiths. And some would have been cautious, as were those who rebuffed the Mannings when they came into the city. Yeah, and and I just want to, I try and always be an advocate for my listeners you know, you, you grow up in the church and you pretty much never hear about race and it's sort of a non-issue and that's phase one. Phase two is if you happen to stumble into it, you know, you, you hear about, um, you know, statements that were made that, that some call racist and we're going to talk about those later. And and then, sure you know, the, the product of, of your time, the product of their time sort of uh, label is, is put on. But what this does is swing it back to the middle. It's not that race was a non-issue in that everyone was lovey and kind and peaceful all the time. <laughs> it's not that everyone was a racist and, and everybody was, was, was uh, passing off racial slurs, but instead, not only do we see extreme acts of kindness on behalf of the prophet and others um, for, for all races and nationalities at times, we also have um, uh, other members who express that. We also have black members saying that they had a great experience with the members of the church. Um, and then, of course, we have some instances of, of, of hatred and racism and cautiousness. But, it, it, you know, Greg Prince once said that there's really no black hats and no white hats, but that things are a lot more complex and nuanced than sometimes the Internet allows us to think. Absolutely. And, and I think the people then, as today, were about living and trying to survive and to make a living and to take care of themselves and their families. And uh, in the process of that, we were also concerned about worshiping God. And, and, and so, yeah, it's not about black hats and white hats. It's about being on uh, about the business of living and worshiping God. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that uh, diversion that you allowed me to take you on. Uh, please continue. <laughs> well, Elijah Abel. Uh, 1836, became a duly licensed minister of the gospel for missionary work in Ohio. And this good man also served missions in New York and in Canada. Hmm. So is it safe to say he was comparable to a general authority? Third quorum of the 70. Um, he wouldn't have had his picture in the ensign if they had, <laughs> had an ensign back then. Right. Uh, but he was, he was a member of the third quorum of the 70. Hmm. Okay. And then moving forward in time, uh, you know, the question is, when did the priesthood restriction come into play, and how did it come into play? We we have the statement, uh, of course, from Zebedee Coltrane saying it came into play in 1834. But in June of 1839, Elijah Abel's activities were discussed by the brethren. His holding of the priesthood is not questioned. And in, in that meeting, we have Joseph Smith, Jr. Hmm. So, uh, again, if Brother Coltrane is correct, 
um, we are at odds with the realities of what took place in the meeting uh, from which we have the minutes uh, of the meeting taking place in 1839. Okay. 1842, moving forward in time, the Pearl of Great Price was completed. Uh, it's uh, something that took place over the span of about five years. Uh, that work, the Pearl of Great Price, makes two references relevant to the issue at hand. We have Enoch, who ministers the gospel to surrounding nations, but does not do so to those of the lineage of Cain, who are identified as being black. And uh, the LDS community has traditionally interpreted Moses 7 as, report, uh, as referring to the black skin color rather than black in deeds or in spirituality. Okay. But it's also interesting to note uh, what happened to these people in Enoch um, that Enoch was ministering to? What happened to all those good souls, John? Uh, they were translated, I believe. No, that's a different Enoch. Oh, I'm embarrassed. Tell yep, us. And what we have, this is pre-flood. All of those that uh, Enoch was ministering to are those that he did not minister to. Uh, they got to find out how well they could tread water. Oh. Because uh, Noah happens, and we have the ark. And, of course, in that story, we have uh, Noah and his wife. Uh, we have the three boys, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. But all of these people, whether they accepted the gospel or not, were deemed not to be uh, spiritually of... Uh, the level that God wanted to save them. They were drowned. So even when we read that in the Pearl of Great Price, we need to put it in the context of what happened to those souls. Hmm. Okay. Again, going forward in time, 1843, we have three apostles, uh, Heber C. Campbell, Orson Pratt, and John Page, who uh, meet and restrict Elijah Abel's missionary work to his own people. Now, again, the year is 1843. Elijah Abel's priesthood seems not to be at an issue. No one tries to take the priesthood from him. And, in fact, he is called to serve another mission. And the other thing that's important to note is that they clearly perceive him as black, of African lineage, because right. that was... One of Zebedee Coltrane's claims is that as soon as Joseph Smith knew his color, knew his race, he was he Elijah Abel was dropped from the quorum, and we'll come to that a little bit later when we get to 1879. But important to note that uh, if, if he was told to preach only to his own people, uh, those of African descent, his race was was acknowledged back then. So, so do we? I mean, did Joseph know? About, he, Joseph was still alive in 1843. Did he know about this? Do we know if? Elijah went and said, hey, what's up? Why are they doing this to me? Or is that just not known? He, he was in Cincinnati. So Joseph was in Nauvoo. Elijah Abel was in Cincinnati okay. when, when this mandate came down. to and, and I have the impression that it's from those three apostles, not from Joseph Smith, okay. that just preach to your own kind. We've got the race issue getting hotter and hotter all the time. We're just around the corner from the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. So uh, the, the issue is pretty fiery, but you've got the distance, and it's not where you can make a phone call or um, drop an email or do a podcast. Right. So you've yeah, got right. Joseph in Nauvoo, and, and, and Joseph at this point is almost ready for the last year of his life and preparing for a presidential campaign which he, where he's going to take a very bold stance against slavery. Um, and 
I, I, I don't believe that Joseph actually gave that order. I think it was the apostles, but, but we don't have a record of the line of, you know, the, okay. the chain of command, That's how fine. that came down. That's good. Makes sense. But then again, as we move into that significant year, 1844, we can look at another black man who held a priesthood. Walker Lewis, a black member, uh, was a barber in Lowell, Massachusetts. He was ordained an elder by William Smith, the younger brother of Joseph Smith, Jr. So uh, we're not just looking at one black man holding the priesthood now, but two, Brother Walker Lewis. Okay. And again, that year was 1844. Mm-hmm. Also in that year, pardon? Oh, the year of Joseph's death, actually. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, Joseph Smith is campaigning, of course, for the presidency, and he's on an anti-slavery platform, and uh, his aim was to end slavery by 1850. And um, Brother Joseph said, quote, break off the shackles from the poor black man and hire him to labor with other human beings, for an hour of virtuous liberty on earth is worth a whole eternity of bondage, close quote. So very strong. Now, now before we talk about the martyrdom, I just um, I, I wanted to get the record straight just on one thing. I mean, it's a surprise to to many you know Americans that people who we view as as the grandfathers of uh, freedom and and civil rights, like you know Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, even though we often attribute them with civil rights and with freeing the slaves and and goodness and openness, the truth is they did make some statements that would be considered pretty hateful or, or pretty racist by today's standards. All of them. And, and so... And, and you've, got the founding fa- you've, you've, you've got the founding fathers dealing with the issue of slavery way back then yeah. and doing the three-fourths compromise right. where because they need the southern states who are not going to, to join them in organizing the Constitution unless they have that three-fourths compromise. And so you have... Slaveholders who actually think slavery is wrong, deciding that let's go ahead and do the three-fourths compromise where a black man, in order for the the ideas of representation to to uh, not favor one group of states over another, a black man will be worth only three-fourths of a man. Right. The free th- the, the famous we had Jefferson and Washington as slaveholders. Uh, Lincoln, of course, during his day was not, or in his lifetime, ever a, a slaveholder. And while he, it was he who uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, saw to it that legislation went through Congress uh, trying to right the ills of the past, um, Abraham Lincoln's own view was that if he could have held on to the Union, um, and in doing so, still have to uh, agree to slavery. He would have done so. Hmm. Uh, the union was the critical thing in his thinking. Right. And and he may have made a statement or two that wouldn't be considered enlightened today on race. And and so that was yes. my question: Was Joseph Smith completely uh, enlightened and and no. pure no. on this no. issue, or no. are there statements no. just for the record, just to get everything out there? Are there opinions what, what or statements? Go ahead. Darius is going to have more to say on this, but I'll, okay. let me just launch it. What you see with Joseph Smith is evolution. Hmm. You you see him in the earlier years making statements about the seed of Cain and and you know statements that are reflective of the Protestant ideas of the time. But you see him really growing, and I I personally think that that we grow in our acceptance of other nations and peoples as we become acquainted with them. Yes. We know 
for a fact that that Joseph Smith had a deep friendship with Elijah Abel, that he had a tender relationship with Jane Manning James, uh, that there were other African Americans in Nauvoo, and that they knew and loved Joseph Smith, and I suspect he knew and loved them. Slavery was repugnant to him. We haven't gone over all of the things that that he did, but as mayor, he uh, a man was charged with whipping a slave, and Joseph Smith came down very hard on it. Uh, the the whole idea of of anyone being in bondage. When someone asked Joseph Smith, "What if this, this person wants to come to Nauvoo, but he wants to bring fifty slaves with him?" The answer was, "Tell him free his slaves, educate them, and then come join us in Nauvoo." Hmm. So I I see a great evolution in Joseph Smith, and that to me is the promising thing for for all of us. That that uh, the the more he becomes acquainted with with African Americans within the city and sees how they embrace the faith and how they love him, uh, his heart opens up. Mm-hmm. Same as we were just talking about the pearl of great price. That uh, the, the when God weeps, it's because the people are without affection and they hate their own blood, and and the idea that our hearts can open as wide as eternity if we allow that miracle to happen. Mm. And I see it beginning to happen in Joseph Smith, and the presidential campaign certainly reflects that. So while a detractor may be able to pull up isolated statements here here or there from Joseph's earlier years that might be considered racist or inflammatory, if an objective person looks at the overall history and story, they're going to find a man who grew in further light and knowledge uh, to a level of, of uh, great enlightenment on race and color and creed, etc. Is that what you're and, saying? And we probably wouldn't say he, he, he attained enlighten, full enlightenment on this because he, he still, you know, he was very much opposed to interracial marriage and, and said uh, they should keep to their own species, and that's fr- pretty late in his life. Uh, but Michael Quinn, one of, one of the very knowledgeable church historians, talked about Joseph Smith being absolutely radical for his time mm-hmm. in, in his views on race. Right. And I'm sure Darius has things to add on that. Well, you know, just the thought that uh, Brother Joseph wanted to uh, free the slaves by uh, selling public lands and taking those proceeds and compensating the slave owners so that they wouldn't be hurt financially. Uh, he, he was very pragmatic. He realized that uh, there was a great deal of money tied in that supposed property, the lives of human beings as slaves. But uh, he, he was very uh, active in trying to put forth a plan that would be workable. And, and I think that should be recognized. It was was he a man, as Margaret said, who achieved full enlightenment? No, but I don't know of any who have done that other than one who was enlightened from the very beginning. I think his name was Jesus or something like that. Very good. Okay, well, please, uh, please continue. Well, as we move forward that same year, we were talking about 1844. Of course, in June of that year, we have the martyrdom of uh, the Prophet Joseph and his brother Hiram. And uh, that was a horrible day, and it marked a day that brought up with it some changes. Later that same year, in November of 1844, we have the Apostle Wilfred Woodruff, later to become a church president. Um, Brother Woodruff visited Lowell, Massachusetts, and observed that, quote, a colored brother who was an elder and presumably we're talking about Walker Lewis here, was present. 
and there was no remark made about the existence of a black elder being contrary to the doctrines or practices of the church. Hmm. Do we have a source for that, or that's that'll be in the journal of Wilfred Rudolph kept a great journal. Okay, okay, sure. Then moving forward again in time, same year, eighteen forty-four through eighteen forty-five. The Lowell, Massachusetts area is visited by Apostles Ezra T. Benson and Brigham Young, neither of whom mentions any problem with a black man holding the priesthood. Uh, Brother Brigham later, in 1847, uh, made a statement that made it clear that he was aware of Walker Lewis and the fact that Walker Lewis did indeed hold the priesthood. So Brother Joseph is dead, uh, Brother Hiram is dead. Uh, the priesthood restriction that Zebedee Coltrane talked about uh, having been put in place in 1834 seems somehow not to have been noticed by any of the other senior brethren of the church. Uh, here we have 1847 with Brother Brigham leading the church, and he has uh, no apparent problem with Walker Lewis being a priesthood holder. Hmm, okay. Interesting. 27th of April, 1845. Orson Hyde refers to Negroes as the cursed lineage of Canaan and says that the curse of servility which they bore was for their actions in the pre-existence. Uh, this is interesting. Um, John, I've been a member of the LDS Church now more than 41 years, and uh, in those early years especially, uh, I, I heard so often that the reason uh, that blacks did not hold the priesthood, could not hold the priesthood, was because we had been less valiant in the pre-existence, or that we had been fence-sitters in the pre-existence. And, and so here we have that comment being made in 1845 by Brother Orson Hyde. Uh, sadly, there is no doctrinal support for that position. It is a position that was taken by an individual and put forward and then added to by others over time. But uh, here we have again a beginning. We had a beginning with uh, Brother Zebedee Coltrane. Here we have something else being added to the mix. This is, it becomes really significant because the church had imported from all over the world, but all of the Protestant sects especially, the whole idea that blacks were descendants of Cain and that the the curse of Canaan via Noah came on, on the blacks. That was something that, were, that had been used to justify slavery back in the 15th century. So, you know, just absolutely ubiquitous all, all over the place. People were using that. But in, in the Articles of Faith, we're told that we are not responsible for Adam's transgression, that each man is responsible for his own, and you have to extrapolate from that, then is a black man responsible for... Cain's transgression or for uh, Ham's transgression for whatever was implied by seeing his father's nakedness? And the answer would have to come back, well, not, not if we actually do believe that each man is responsible for his own sins. So then why would there be any cause for priesthood restriction? And this very speculative idea given by Orson Hyde and then later echoed by other leaders, but always speculatively, you know, nobody's saying, thus saith the Lord, then comes into the the institutional memory, and before too long, we have people saying, "Well, the church has always said that." And uh, my understanding is that because of what they did in the preexistence, but but in fact, we only have speculation trying to marry that idea to justify the priesthood restriction 
based on something that doesn't fit into our articles of faith. And that, we, that and, blacks are being punished for sins that somebody else committed. But then we also have the issue that if blacks had been less valiant and had rooted for Satan uh, in that battle that took place, we would not be here with physical, tangible bodies. Um, we're told that the very nature of the conflict required that everyone take a stand. Therefore, there could be no neutrals, and there could be no fence-sitters, uh, and the fact that blacks are here with physical, tangible bodies is a clear indication that we were on the side of Father and of the Savior. Hmm. So the fence-sitter um, argument doesn't fit. It, it, it does not stand the test. So let me just let me, let me just real quick, if I can jump in. Um, the, the, the first thing I wanted to note is while... While the notion of a curse of Cain or a curse of Ham is certainly not a Mormon original, true? True, true. The, we, this notion of a curse in the preexistence just might be, a, a curse stemming from the preexistence just might be sort of uh, a Mormon original. Be that is uniquely Mormon. Because be the preexistence, concept of the preexistence is uniquely right. Mormon. So a, a follow-up question is, does this belief voiced attributed to Orson Hyde in 1845, is it, is it found anywhere else prior to 1845 by Joseph Smith or any of the other general authorities or leaders in the church, or do we even know? Not that I'm aware of, no. Margaret? Yeah, I haven't seen anything. Okay, so this is, and, and if, if we get a chance, I'd love to get the source of this quote, because if this becomes the original, maybe Lester Bush's article talks about it, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, that's pretty important. Well, and, and we we didn't include the the little brackets of it is my belief that, and I, I don't remember how he s steps forth and says, I am going to speculate that, that it's given as a speculation. And mm -hmm. then it's the, that speculation, you know, other people think about it and say, oh, that's a pretty good speculation. And then just in the course of time, suddenly it's no longer being considered a speculation. And it, and it does make sense that it, this belief is driven out of the attempt to reconcile that that man is not cursed for what their ancestors do, right? Uh, so you got to find some justification. So we may as well some. put it back in yep. the preexistence. Okay, great. Well, you know, we talked about Elijah Abel having a priesthood, and then we talked about Walker Lewis in Law, Massachusetts. Again, uh, they weren't the only ones. We have now a third one. Uh, October eighteen forty-six, William, also known as Black Pete McCary is baptized and ordained by Apostle Orson Hyde. Okay. Hmm. That's the man that we just talked about saying that quote before. <laughs> Interesting, I'm isn't sure it? that wasn't an accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, Orson Hyde made the comment in uh, April of 19, or 1845, um, and yet it was in October of 1846 that we have Black Pete being ordained. Okay. Uh, so, no, I guess there was no accident there. Okay. Black Pete, William McCary. He was known as the Black Prophet, and uh, he was a man who brought trouble upon himself. He uh, seduced a number of Mormon women into his own polygamy rites, and he was subsequently excommunicated because of that. Hmm. And uh, because of the racial tensions between blacks and whites, and always there's been that fear about uh, the oversexed black man 
wanting to have his way with the pure white woman, um, that that may have brought some additional problems in other than just those of having uh, William McCary excommunicated. Brigham Young, that same year, declares that blacks are ineligible for certain temple ordinances. And that might possibly be that Brigham was reacting to the William McCary Black Pete uh, situation. So this is a pretty. Keep in mind that we're we, we're not dealing with prior prior to this, and we'll we'll get to the specific ideas about priesthood restriction. But prior to this, when people are talking about curse of Cain, curse of Canaan, it's it's not used as justification for this is why we're not going to allow blacks to hold the priesthood. It's using it's being used as this is why blacks have it so hard. Or in some cases, uh, a lot of Protestant preachers all over the place trying to keep the Civil War from happening are saying, this is God's design, and these are the curses that support the way things ought to be. So it's not a question of priesthood. It's a question of social status. And while uh, Brother Brigham declared uh, blacks ineligible for certain temple ordinances, there was not a restriction on priesthood that year in 1847. But this this now becomes later, a uh, this becomes a pretty important event because uh, it could be probably one of the seminal events in that that leads to the prohibition. Would you guys say that there's a high likelihood of that? Well, yes, we we actually have a statement back there, and I'm trying to remember which of the Orsons it was. And we've got Orson Spencer, Orson Hyde, and Orson Pratt, and I'm, my memory is serving me, me well, but when these women are following Black Pete, the statement is made, what will you follow a man who has no right to the priesthood? Mm-hmm. And that's the first intimation of what's going to follow, mm-hmm. but that's the very first. But what Brother Brigham says at the same time is, quote, it's nothing to do with the blood, for of one blood has God made all flesh. Mm. We have one of the finest, finest elders, an African, uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts, and it's all likelihood referring to Walker Lewis. So even during this period of time where Pete McCary is being excommunicated and there's the sensitivity about uh, McCary su- uh, seducing a number of uh, white sisters, uh, still Brother Brigham says it has nothing to do with blood, hmm. for of one blood has God made all flesh. And we have one of the best elders, very important because of what Brigham Young is going to be saying later, that in 1847, he's acknowledging an important African-American elder in Lowell, Massachusetts. Yeah, and I'm just going to throw out, and I'm sure you guys are going to address this, that for those who have access to the journal Discourses or Google, they're going to find that statement by Brigham Young to be quite uh, not what they expected from Brigham Young. Well, here we come. (laughs) You just let us right there. All right. Let's move forward two years. Now we are in February of 1849, and here we have the earliest statement on priesthood restriction, and it comes from Brother Brigham when he declares, quote, because Cain cut off the lives of Abel, the Lord cursed Canaan's seed and prohibited them from the priesthood, end quote. Hmm. And this is the first statement that we have, definitive statement, and it comes two years following Brother Brigham's own statement that it has nothing to do with blood, nothing to do with lineage. Hmm. Right. So it sort of begs the question, what's changed? What has happened? Yeah, what happened? Well, I expect you guys may not have the answer, but... (laughs) No, I think one of the things that happened was this. 
as we're moving closer and closer to the Civil War, tensions are mounting throughout the nation on the topic of slavery and then, of course, on the topic of race. And now we have the Saints who had been in Upper New York uh, State, and then they were in Ohio. And then from Ohio, they went to Mississippi, or Mississippi, Missouri, excuse me. And from Missouri, they, you know, were run out and went into uh, Illinois. And from Nauvoo, we came west. But at each of those stages, the saints were spending money moving. They were spending money building new dwellings. They were spending money building two temples, the Kirtland Temple and then the Nauvoo Temple. And by the time the saints got to the Salt Lake Valley, we were poor as could be. We had shot our wad. But there were seeds that had been planted by early Mormon missionaries uh, who had gone into the southern uh, states and who had been teaching the gospel there. And in 1850, 12 Mormon slave owners who possessed between 60 and 70 black slaves came into the Deseret Territory. And one of those slave owners was the Apostle Charles C. Rich. And we have something else that took place in that same time period, 1852. The Territorial Legislature passed the law legalizing slavery in Utah. And that's something that many don't know. It was called an act in relation to service but it gave legal recognition to black slaveholding in the territory of Deseret. Hmm. So slavery was legal. Did you know that Utah was a slave territory? I did, but I'm sure many of our listeners, that will be news to them. Um, was that a pragmatic decision? Was that, you know, how, how do you guys uh, make sense of that? It was actually against the counsel of John Bernheisel, who was, who was sort of the emissary to Washington, D.C., um, and and probably was pragmatic, you know, involving it's part of the California Compromise with New Mexico, Utah, and California. Uh, California came into the Union as a free territory, or a free state, rather, and uh, Utah and New Mexico territories were given the option of being free or slave, and New Mexico chose free, and Utah chose slave. And I think it might be because of an accommodation being made to those southern uh, saints, uh, the Mississippi saints, who came into the valley. Hmm. Interesting. Now we move forward in time, another year, 1853. Elijah Abel uh, is now not allowed by Brigham Young to receive his endowment. Uh, as Margaret pointed out, Brother Elijah did receive the washing of the anointing uh, previously in the Kirtland Temple. But as he uh, approaches Brother Brigham asking for the privilege of receiving the endowment, that uh, right is denied him, that privilege is denied him. And, and this this is one of the points I really want the listeners to imagine what this must have been like for Elijah. Remember that he had left Nauvoo about 1843, uh, gone to Cincinnati. He was a carpenter by trade, uh, a, a gifted carpenter. He got married, had a wife, several children when he came on his own to Utah. And up until this point, there had been no hint that he would be restricted of of anything. He had been made a, a priesthood holder, a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy, had already served two missions, and had been washed and anointed in the Kirtland Temple. And he knew Brigham Young. They, they weren't great friends, but they were acquaintances. Imagine what that must have been like for him to ask 
for the endowment which others were receiving, and to be told that because of his race, he could not participate in those ordinances. Now, the, there was, the Salt Lake Temple wasn't up then, right? No, but you have the endowment. Actually, you've got Ensign Peak first serving as the temple, and then you'll have the endowment house. But the endowment was certainly being given. So, tell, I, just really quickly, what's Ensign Peak? Ensign Peak, is uh, that's actually the mountain where Brigham Young stood and uh, designed all of Salt Lake City, but it, it served as the temporary temple. Anson Pratt was the first one endowed there, but they performed endowments on Ensign Peak. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there so what... That's the state capitol building, John. Right. Uh, that, that outcropping, otherwise known as uh, Peak, a mountain, that small mountain in back of the state capitol building is Ensign Peak. Mm. So this was must have been just a, a shock to Elijah Abel. Oh, it's you. you I, I love the term empathetic imagination. You have to not not just look at the dates, but imagine this man who has come all across the plains with his family, who who has been highly regarded and a part of the Smith family, and who has received everything until now. Although he has been restricted as to who he can preach to. But he has been a loyal, loyal missionary and church member. And then he is told that because of his race, he cannot proceed with what he has already begun. He has already had the initiatory ordinances, but he cannot proceed to the higher ordinances because of his race. Now, did he or any of his loved ones keep a journal to talk about this event? We, we have a little certificate of Elijah Abel signed with an X indicating that he was not literate. Okay. Uh, we we rely on Jane James for a lot of the the actual uh, events. We we have wonderful historians who've who've done great work. Lester Bush probably being preeminent among them, and Noel Bringhurst also. Uh, those those two are the ones that we owe the most to for having really searched the records. But certainly messages were communicated to Elijah, and the responses were communicated, and those are in the minutes of church proceedings. Okay. And what we're providing here, John, is a partial chronology. And um, if we were to try and fill in all of the instances, uh, we would take forever. Sure. And so if I may, what I'd like to do, propose that we do at this point is fast forward. We were just talking about 1853 when um, Brother Brigham uh, denied uh, Elijah the opportunity to receive the uh, endowment. But let's move forward. Uh, a big chunk here. Let's go up to 1879. And here's an example of the conflict that we've had ongoing in the church. Zebedee Coltrane claims that Elijah Abel was dropped from the Quorum of the Seventy when Brother Joseph learned that Abel was black. And that goes back to the statement uh, of 1834. But now we're talking in 1879. At that same time, Apostle Joseph F. Smith challenged Coltrane's claim. Hmm. And um, Apostle um, Smith presented two certificates showing that Elijah Abel had, be, had been reordained to the office of the Seventy. Um, in those days, you had to be recertified um, periodically. And uh, Joseph F. Smith had uh, sought out and found those two recertifications and presented them to counter what Brother Zebedee Coltrane was saying. So we have conflicting accounts in 1879. And let me just contextualize the time also. Brigham Young has died two years ago. Uh, this is 1879. Brigham Young died in 1877. 
So why is Elijah petitioning again? He's already been told no. And why are they listening again? Why don't they just say, well, didn't Brigham Young already answer that? It becomes a really important question in an important meeting. Uh, first of all, Elijah Abel's wife is dying, and he wants the sealing ordinances. He, you know, he understands what is implied by the church doctrine of eternal sealing, and he wants to be sealed to his wife. But secondly, he thinks that he, with Brigham Young gone, he can approach the new church president and ask. And indeed, they don't summarily say, well, I thought you already got that answer. They go back and revisit and say, what did Joseph Smith say about this? And that's when Zebedee Coltrane provides his uh, pretty old memory, and he gets a couple of things wrong in that memory, and then you have Joseph F. Smith countering it. Uh, but that's when his patriarchal blessing is read again. They pull that out of the records, and there are Father Smith's words, Thou hast been ordained an elder, and shalt be protected against the powers of the adversary. So th there's, in 1879, there are big questions about this policy. And Brother Coltrane's memory is shown to be unreliable again. Uh, his claim to date, 1834, for Joseph Smith announcing the alleged ban is impossible, since Coltrane himself ordained Abel a 70 mm -hmm. two years later than that in 1836. And, and let's use the empathetic imagination once again. This information is taken to Elijah Abel, and he's also told that Zebedee Coltrane had said, I washed and anointed Elijah Abel in the temple and never had a worse feeling in my life, and I swore that I would never do so again unless I were commanded to by a prophet. And uh, Elijah is told that, and he says, Zebedee Coltrane did not wash and anoint me, but he did ordain me a 70. But imagine being told that this is what is being said about you that this man who performed, he claims he performed this ordinance and said he never had a worse feeling in his life than when he did that. And we have the record of Elijah, not in his own handwriting, but of Elijah responding that that is inaccurate. Yeah. It wasn't Zebedee who washed and anointed me. But just the whole, the whole sense of things, that he is being told that he is defective, that, that somehow his very presence brings a terrible feeling to the person who is performing a priesthood ordinance. Very bitter, moving forward, very, very bitter pill to swallow. Yeah. And moving forward just one year to 1880, Elijah Abel is again denied the endowment, this time by the Quorum of the Twelve, before it was by Brother Brigham. And then in 1883, Elijah Abel is still on record as a member of the Seventy. And then in 1884, Elijah Abel goes on his third mission for the church, he returns home and dies in December of 1884. Mm. So here is a man who is given the majority of his adult life in the service of the church. Uh, he worked on uh, three temples, uh, the Kirtland, the Nauvoo, and the Salt Lake. He served three full-time missions for the church. Uh, he is a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy, uh, he has to have felt isolated and uh, at times very disregarded by the statements of uh, Zebedee Coltrane and others, and yet he has remained faithful and has come home from his third mission only to die. Hmm. And we'll, we'll get to his obituary, but let me pull Jane James back in at this point. Uh, when Lester Bush and, and Newell Bringhurst wrote about Elijah, they were focused on Elijah, we, Darius and I, as we wrote our books, got to look at everybody, and so we were always 
comparing dates. What's happening? Why, why does this matter to Elijah this year? And then looking at the dates, the first time when Jane James goes to uh, John Taylor, who is president of the church, to ask for her endowment. Surprise, Jane James also petitioned, in fact, petitioned to every church president for her endowment. What's the date? Well, it's December 25th, 1884. It's mm. a Thursday. We know this because she dictated a letter on December 27th that says, Dear Brother, addressed to President Taylor, I called at your house last Thursday, and I had my husband figure out what that Thursday was. December 25th, 1884 is the date of Elijah Abel's death. Hmm. It's hard to imagine that there wasn't some kind of a conversation where Elijah Abel sort of gave the gauntlet to Jane and said, I... I have not been able to get my endowments, but you continue on with it. And the letter itself is so poignant, uh, and it indicates her understanding of the gospel. She says, I realize my race and color and cannot expect my endowments as others who are white, but inasmuch as this is the fullness of time, and through Abraham all mankind may be blessed, is there no blessing for me? Mm. And then she goes right on and asks for her endowment, and she doesn't stop asking. Uh, it, every church president, Zina Young, she, she is writing letters or dictating letters, rather, uh, to, to every leader that she thinks might be able to get her what she's asking for. And even the fact that... She is sealed as a servant uh, to Joseph Smith, and then in 1978, things get corrected, and, and she's able to, by proxy, receive her endowment. But even the fact that she's petitioning and asking pretty much demonstrates that there wasn't a clear policy or she wouldn't have been asking, right? Well, they, they certainly knew what Brigham Young had said, but it seems pretty fluid by this time. And she, she does say, I realize my race and color and not expect my endowment. But the fact that she then goes on and asks for her endowment and that after she's uh, given what they feel they can give her, looking at what the prophets have taught, which is to seal her as a servant to Joseph Smith, that she keeps asking, and that Wilfred Woodruff says, Jane Jane, not being content with what we've already given her, has requested again, and uh, it, it goes on all the way through Joseph F. Smith. And as you'll see in some uh, other slides that are forthcoming, John, uh, it is still unclear to the brethren, and uh, we'll see that as we move forward even into the 1900s. But uh, John Taylor had to ask, what did Brother Brigham teach? And Brother Brigham had to say, um, you know, if it's never been said before, I say it now, indicating that nothing had been said by the Prophet Joseph Smith, Jr. So it is uncertain. It is a moving target. Yeah. Going to December 26th, the day following the death of Elijah Abel, we have the obituary in the Deseret News, 1884. And uh, reading that obituary, died Elijah Abel of old age and debility, consequent upon exposure while laboring in the ministry in Ohio. He joined the church and was ordained an elder, as appears by certificate, dated March 3, 1836. He was subsequently ordained a 70, as appears by certificate, dated April 4, 1841. He died in full faith of the gospel. Mm. And again, if, if, if this were a white person, member of the church, 
uh, who had died, the care would not have been given to point out that he had been ordained and given the day of that ordination, uh, that he was ordained an elder or when he was ordained a 70. Again, they're making sure that people understand that this man was a man of color. Hmm. Right. So it's pretty much uh, unrefutable, irrefutable. In yeah, terms I of his ethnicity, good. yes. And his uh, priesthood holding, uh, standing, right. etc. Moving forward in time, 1895, we have a second review. Elijah Abel, now dead some 11 years, is again discussed by the Quorum of the Twelve. Joseph F. Smith again rebuffs claims that Abel had been dropped from the priesthood. On the contrary, Joseph F. Smith made two new claims that Abel's original ordination was done under the direction of Joseph Smith, Jr., mm -hmm. and that Abel was ordained a high priest after being a 70. Hmm. And that is 1895. Hmm. Hmm. See, I always assumed that, that, Brigham, that, that the statements that we'll talk about from Bruce R. McConkie came from Joseph Fielding Smith, which was his... Uh, father-in-law father that mm -hmm. then came from Joseph F. Smith, which was his father, which came from well, Brigham we're, Young. We're well. going to get there. We're going to have a reversal in 1908. We'll, uh, okay. we'll just move up to it. Okay. Yeah. But now, moving forward in time, Elijah Abel's next generation. We have a certificate of November 27, 1900, Enoch Abel son of Elijah and Mary and Abel, Enoch is ordained an elder, and that's in 1900. And again, if the policy had been firmly fixed by Brother Joseph or Brother Brigham or John Taylor, we would not have had that ordination. But now, 1905, Joseph 1908. F. or 1908, Joseph F. Smith, the man who on two occasions has defended the fact that Elijah Abel held the priesthood and that that was not removed from him and that Elijah Abel continued to be an active member of the 70. Joseph F. Smith, on unspecified grounds, reverses his former position about Elijah Abel's status and now claims that, uh, that Joseph Smith himself declared Abel's ordination null and void. Hmm. I, I'm looking forward to a time when I can speak to Brother Smith <laughs> and ask what happened uh, after you, you stood the ground and you saw the certificates, you you presented them showing the evidence uh, to the contrary, what caused you in 1908 to have a reversal? But now even with that reversal, and that was again 1908, if we move forward to 1934, Elijah Abel, grandson of the original Elijah Abel, is ordained a priest. And then later, in uh, September of 1935, the same grandson, Elijah Abel, is ordained an elder. Right. I'll, I'll just make a brief comment about that 1908 date. This is one that I simply can't explain. I, I, I can't. Uh, I can't give a reason why Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith, would have said what he said when when he had been such a champion for Elijah Abel earlier. Um, it is the year of Jane James's death. I I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I'm with Darius. I'm eager to to understand uh, why the policy changed, or or the or the statement Joseph F. Smith's statements. But there there you have. 
uh, again, we're looking at the establishment of institutional memory, and this, of course, is much more consistent with what we're going to see later on in Mormon doctrine. Right. Real, qu- real quick, th- and this has been very, very important and valuable, and I'm so grateful <clears throat> that we have this history laid out. There's one, there's one uh, dynamic that I'd love just to to throw out there and get your guys's comment and perspective on, and that's the the statements that are so often pulled out of the Journal of Discourses by Brigham Young and others. I don't know if you want to quote them or if you want me to quote them or if we just want to refer to them. I, I try not to quote them if I'm given the option. So tell me, tell us why, because I, I, a lot of our listeners are going, hey, now in, if we're seeking full candor and truth, you know, there's been some pretty tough statements made about blacks in the Journal of Discourses by Brigham Young and others. Why are you just sort of glossing and skipping over that? So it's fine if we don't... Um, choose to cover it here, but do you want to at least I, talk about why you've chosen not to, or we, if you do have well, perspective no, we, on it? First of all, they, those are, Darius has whole files of far more than the Journal of Discourses. It wasn't just Brigham Young. We have some awful statements from all of the leaders of the church. So how, how can Darius and I uh, do what we do and hold current temple recommends and know everything that was said in the past and still support the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And basically it's, it's because we don't believe in the infallibility of prophets. Uh, we think that Brigham Young did some remarkable things in leading the Mormons on that great immigration, great migration, at the historic migration, but he was blind in certain aspects. There, there's just no question about it. I used the word evolution before talking about Joseph Smith. I see us as a church evolving, consistent with what Joseph Smith talked about in the King Follett discourse about you climb up a ladder in your knowledge. We, we certainly refer to it in the temple as, as we, we get better. We learn things. We grow from our infancy into our boyhood. Uh, we go from our boyhood in, in, or, or, or girlhood into manhood and, and womanhood. But even, I'm, I'm now 50, and you'd think that I would have figured out a whole lot of stuff, and I, I, I still find myself absolutely flummoxed by, by some situations. Right. Uh, and I, I fully acknowledge that I have a whole lot to learn about many, many areas. This area is, is one where I've taken a lot of time to, to find things out about. Um, other areas I'm not prepared to talk about. Brigham Young was marvelous in so, men, so much of what he did, but the statements that he made did start a, a disastrous chain effect. And the marvelous thing is that, that we are a church that believes in continuing revelation. Right. And that we are, in fact, we're going to be coming up to uh, Bruce R. McConkie's bad statements and then the statements where he talks about seeking further light and knowledge. And that's, I have to plug all of that into the context. I've, I've had to just kind of pinch my nose as I read through the terrible things that have been said by past leaders of the church, understanding the damage that they've done and the damage that they continue to do. Right. Because they are very much with us. We are in the Internet age. You can look at you with... with the click of a mouse, you can bring up what Brigham Young said about interracial marriage. You can bring up what he said about blacks being eternally destined to servitude. And they are ugly, ugly statements. Uh, yeah. 
And there are I, statements that came from others of the leaders. Uh, I call them the Orson twins, Orson Hyde and Orson Pratt. And this isn't a question of glossing over or making pretty uh, the hideous and horrendous statements of the past. There were racist statements made. It's fact, and I know that. And, and, and yet I realize that these were men, and they are or were fallible, just as you and I and Margaret are fallible today. And uh, yet I have a testimony. I am a Latter-day Saint. I am a religious person here speaking to you. I have a testimony of the truthfulness of this restored gospel. And I know that God has to use we imperfect people to bring about his purposes. And so if imperfect imperfect people were called who had attitudes that were non-Christian, it does not demean their calling from God. Brigham Young was a prophet of God. Did he have racial attitudes? Absolutely. And and I have to separate the two. Otherwise, I, I would have been offended by some ward member 30 years ago, 40 <laughs> years ago, and never have had the experiences of being in the gospel these last 41 years. Yeah. So I have to make that separation. They were imperfect, not to gloss over it, but recognizing their humanity, and that I, too, am imperfect. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I sometimes believe in this theory of inoculation, that there's going to be people listening to this podcast, and some of this is going to be very new to them. And if they're introduced to these quotes, or at least be aware that they existed, you know, then later on, it's very easy for them to say, you know what, it's, yeah, I knew that, it's no big deal. But when people are blindsided sometimes by these quotes, out of context, Absolutely. without an understanding, it can it can take them down pretty quickly. So that's why I'm, I think, that's uh, bringing up. Yeah, two days ago, uh, there was a message left on my answer machine uh, by a, a man saying that we've got a new brother who uh, was recently baptized, and he is now encountering certain attitudes and past statements. Uh, can't you help out? And you're right. Uh, if you're inoculated, if you're knowledgeable, if you're aware, uh, then it won't blindside you. But too often people have been blindsided. So we acknowledge uh, the ugliness of the past, and we also acknowledge the joy of the past. Very good. And let's talk a little bit about the ugliness and the joy. We do have comments in our literature, and uh, in June 1958, Bruce R. McConkie uh, published uh, his work, Mormon Doctrine, and under the heading for Negroes, he states that Negroes are of the lineage of Cain through Ham's wife, and that Negroes were less valiant in the pre-existence. Now that goes again back to Orson Hyde, but uh, Brother McConkie said that uh, blacks are then banned from the priesthood, and that the gospel message is not to be carried to them. Hmm. That's that's a horrendous statement. But now, let's make make the jump. J. Reuben Clark, quote, They, general authorities, sometimes have spoke out of turn. You will recall that the prophet Joseph declared that a prophet is not always a prophet. So here we have J. Reuben Clark at General Authority uh, pointing out that not every word that comes out of the mouth of a prophet is prophetic. He's not always speaking for God. Uh, Brother Clark went on, quote, even the president of the church himself may not always be moved upon by the Holy Ghost when he addresses the people. This has happened about matters of doctrine, usually of a highly speculative character, where subsequent presidents of the church and the people themselves have felt that in declaring the doctrine, the announcer was not moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Close quote. 
Right. And just to be, and just I'm sure our listeners know, but just to repeat what we've mentioned in prior podcasts, apparently David O. McKay wasn't thrilled when Mormon Doctrine came out. Um, he wasn't happy with the title. He wasn't happy that, that he wasn't um, informed about its coming out before it came out. He actually commissioned a study where he asked, I think it was Jerry McClark and a couple others, to actually um, review the book. Mary and T. Romney, yep. And hundreds of errors, uh, doctrinal errors, were found in it. Oh, not hundreds, thousands. Thousands. And, <laughs> and Brigham, as I understand, Bruce R. McConkie was asked not to publish a new edition of the book, and a new rule was created as a result, requiring all general authorities from that time on to get approval before they could ever publish another book. So, and the only reason why the book wasn't openly repudiated and denounced um, was because you know the, there's a respect for the for the mantle of general authority. I think he was a 70 at the time. He later yeah. became apostle, and you know they were showing respect for for that mantle by not just embarrassing him outright. But I think there were discussions about should we denounce the book altogether. So that's a little historical tidbit that our listeners may not know that I think, and I'm not saying that to disparage Bruce R. McConkie, great man, done wonderful things, but but we shouldn't look at that book necessarily as uh, the fifth standard work. <laughs> and again, it was written by a human being right. uh, uh, who, is infall- uh, who is fallible, not infallible. And I, I hope but I can... we had other voices besides, you know, um, Brother McConkie in 1869, uh, President Hugh B. Brown uh, proposed that the church's policy be reversed and that blacks be given the priesthood. And uh, this policy was approved by the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. However, President McKay and Harold B. Lee uh, uh, were absent. President McKay was out uh, due to illness, and President Lee was traveling on church business when that uh, uh, vote was taken. There was a revote after uh, President Lee, or in this case, uh, Elder Lee, returned, and uh, he called for another vote, and the measure this time uh, to extend the priesthood to blacks was defeated. Now, this will be this will be shocking to some members to think that you know high high level important church policy can can be a matter of votes and a matter of uh you know who votes and who doesn't so do you guys have any it, thoughts it, on that it, it can cer- well it's, it can certainly come in a number of ways and the way that it ultimately did come the fact that that it's being that the issue is being raised and that Hubie Brown felt so strongly about it uh my understanding is that he wept as he signed the document saying that uh, priesthood would not be extended to blacks in, in that year. Um, but the issue is being raised, not not just because we're in the civil rights era, but because uh, the general authorities themselves are researching it. They are told to research it. And that was when President Kimball prepared for uh, what he was going to eventually do. He asked the general authorities, including, by the way, Gordon B. Hinckley, to research the issue, to try to get to to the real roots of it. Is this true? Uh, is, is this a policy that is grounded in our doctrine, or is it not? Is it something that can change? Is it something that should change? So Darius and I both believe firmly that President Kimball received revelation, and we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. And one of the, uh, I, I, I guess, difficult things for me, John, is that I lived through this period. This isn't um, a detached history for me, not that it is for you or Margaret or any of the others of the listeners, but uh, uh, I, I 
was in a unique position uh, as a reporter at KSL during those years. Uh, I, I knew President McKay. I knew uh, Hugh B. Brown, President Brown. Uh, I knew Harold D. Lee. I, I had meetings with uh, some of these men. I, I was in their uh, homes. Um, uh, I knew Spencer Woolley Kimball. Uh, so all of this is very first person to me, and uh, it, it's sort of hard at times to reflect back on some of the attitudes and some of the issues as they were being addressed at the time. But then we always need to be forward-looking, and that's not the gloss over, but we need to be forward-looking. 1973, after becoming president of the church, Spencer Kimball was asked about the position of the church regarding blacks and the priesthood, and he stated, quote, I am not sure that there will be a change, although there could be, close quote. And, and that's five years before the revelation was received. But uh, here was a man who was at least open to it. Uh, and President McKay had been asking God about it. Uh, he was concerned. He had wept many tears uh, over the issue. And so it was a process. It was uh, something that we were moving toward. But here's the statement, 1973, by President Kemble. I'm not sure there will be a change, although there could be. Do you guys want to talk really briefly about the conversation between Sterling McMurrin and, and David O. McKay in the 1950s, early 60s, and David, David O. McKay's we, we view We can do of, that, and, and, and refer, you've already got a podcast with uh, Greg Prince. Yeah. But uh, Greg's book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, goes into a lot of the conversation between Sterling McMurrin and... David and McKay, who were very dear friends, and Sterling McMurrin called President McKay and said, "I think that I've, uh, I think I'm probably going to have church action taken against me. I just wanted you to know in case it comes up." And President McKay's response was, "What did you do?" He said, "Well, Sunday school. They started talking about the priesthood policy as uh, a doctrine of the church, and I, I said, I don't believe it's a doctrine. I believe it's a policy." And President McKay replied, I'm glad you said that, because that's what I believe as well. Mm. And if they do hold a church court, you let me know, and I will be there to speak in your defense. Mm. And readers can uh, take a look at Greg's wonderful book on David O. McKay to, to find out more about that conversation. And, and you see, I remember a day when I was up at the University of Utah, wherein um, Dr. McMurrin invited me into his office, and he was asking me questions personally about my membership in the church and what I thought of the priesthood restriction. So again, uh, a lot of these things um, <laughs> sort of smack me between the eyes. Sure. And I'm glad we are where we are rather than where we were. Sure. And and that just reminds me of, of President Kimball. In in uh, we we've had a plethora of really wonderful books coming out this year with uh, Ed Kimball writing another biography of his father mostly about the priesthood revelation. That's where the heart of the book is, and then Greg's book. But he talks about uh, President Kimball interviewing people to become state presidents and asks him straight out, what would you think if there were a change in the priesthood restriction, if, there, if, if the priesthood were extended to all worthy males? And the, the people being interviewed would think that it was probably a litmus test for their faithfulness it would be kind of confused. And it really did seem that President Kimball was feeling out the territory. And then as you have President Kimball's reports about going to the temple day after day after day and pleading with the Lord and saying, if this, is, if this change is not to come, I will accept that and I will stand by 
the policy for the rest of my life, but if it is to come, then let us know. And uh, again, this was done by asking all of the 12 to research the issue, the, the idea of study it out in your minds before we go forward, and then meeting in the temple on that remarkable day that we're going to talk about now in 1978, June 1st, and President Kimball saying, if you don't mind, I would like to be the mouth, and then pleading with the Lord to have an answer for whether or not the, the priesthood could be extended. President Kimball already knew what he believed the Lord wanted, but he wanted all of the 12 to be in full unanimity on this issue. And his quote was that he, quote, I offered the final prayer. This revelation and assurance came to me so clearly that there was no question about it. I knew that the time had come, close quote from President Kimball. Hmm. And, and this is the point where those of us who are old enough, whenever Darius and I talk about th this with, with any group, when, when they're my age or older, all of us have memories of where we were that day, what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, Darius was, was told when he was working for Zellerback, Zellerback Paper, and the secretary said, Darius, I hear Negroes are going to be given the priesthood. <laughs> and he... I, I didn't even look up, I, and, and I was offended by it because you know it was a sensitive subject. And then I told the woman, Dixie, that's not funny. Get out. Mm -hmm. And um, she repeated it, and uh, this time I swore at her. And um, I, I told her, you know, it was not funny. Get the hell out of my office. Hmm. And um, the woman persisted, and uh, she had been on the phone uh, with the uh, church office building. Uh, they were our largest customer. And um, the rumor was going about that the priesthood was about to be extended. And uh, so I, I listened to uh, this woman tell me that, and uh, it was so contrary to everything I'd ever thought would happen. I thought I would have to wait until the second coming before mm -hmm. priesthood would be available. But uh, I turned on the television and the radio in my office, and there were no news bulletins. And so I did the only logical thing. I picked up the phone and called President Kimball. Mm. And um, so I, I received confirmation that uh, priesthood was now to be available to all worthy males. Mm. I remember the day well, but yeah, it's one of those, where were you when? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was in Mexico. I got the message in Spanish. <laughs> Uh, From yeah. a weeping woman. And I in Katy, Texas. And I was in Katy, Pardon Texas. Me? I was in Katy, Texas. <laughs> but you know, as we move forward in time, I want to revisit Elder McConkie, um, who had made those hurtful comments in Mormon doctrine. But uh, he gave a talk one month after the revelation was announced in, in June. Well, it might have been two months. It might have been August of um, 1978. But in speaking at BYU in a talk entitled All Are Like Unto God, um, Elder McConkie offered these words, and this will be a quote. He said, Forget everything that I have said, or what President Brigham Young or President George Q. Cannon or whomsoever has said in days past that is contrary to the present revelation. We spoke with a limited understanding and without the light and knowledge that has now come into the world. And Elder McConkie continued, We get our truth and our light, line upon line, precept upon precept. We have now had added a new flood of intelligence and light on this particular subject, and it erases all the darkness and all the views 
and all the thoughts of the past. They don't matter anymore. Close quote, Elder mm. Bruce R. McConkie. Mm. And, and most members have never even come close to hearing that quote. No, and, and that's the sad thing. But again, it's part of this progression. It's part of this um, evolving uh, in the church. Elder McConkie evolved. He changed. He grew. Uh, he went from his former position to the one just stated. Hmm. And it's sad that that quote is not widely known. But again, you can find it on the Internet. All are alike unto God. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie. And, and we, um, we're going to be coming up now to our most recent conference, April of, of 2006. Um, obviously, we haven't come as far as we need to come, or we wouldn't have needed to hear President Hinckley's words in the priesthood session. Right. And the beautiful talk that Elder Oaks gave that Darius will quote from in, in a moment, where he makes so clear uh, what the Abrahamic Covenant implies and that none are excluded or restricted. Uh, we are still troubled, as as we know, by the folklore that was introduced. That that is just that that's our our human nature. Kind of is to start little stories and then get them going, and then they be car- they, we they we assume that it was all true, that that foundation was all true. The way I see it, it's kind of like uh, when the Salt Lake Temple was constructed on a foundation of sandstone that simply was not adequate to hold up, and. The instructions came down, tear it down. Mm-hmm. It's got to come down. Tear it down so that you can build it on something that will last. And so they had to, all of that work had to be completely torn apart, and the temple had to be started again. Uh, I was introduced to the idea of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission by President Hinckley, actually, in another general conference where he talked about forgiveness and gave that story of a young boy who threw a frozen turkey at a woman in a car, and the woman was mangled by this frozen turkey. And he talked about how uh, she forgave him because she wanted him to continue and have a good life and not spend the rest of his life in prison. Uh, I went to that talk and went to the link, and in the link of the article that described that, it talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, said by Bishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. And to me it was just, oh my goodness, this is clearly the answer. We have to be absolutely honest about what happened, and then we have to find a way to reconcile ourselves so that we can continue as a united people, repent of what's been done, but then move forward. Uh, truth and reconciliation. And I certainly see this past conference as being a step towards truth and reconciliation. We're not finished, but some wonderful steps were made. As a people black and white, male and female, we have been wounded by some of the comments of the past and some of those comments have been carried forward. But it is a time to heal, and we need to heal those wounds. Elder Oaks said at this last conference, quote, God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him that through him all families or nations of the earth would be blessed. If ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed. And Elder Oaks continued, Neither riches, nor lineage, nor any other privilege of birth should cause us to believe that we are better one to another. Indeed, the Book of Mormon says that we must not esteem one flesh above another. And that's a close quote from Elder Oaks. And then 
the final slide that I, I have uh, in this presentation that Margaret might put together is uh, revisiting one of the first ones, and uh, it's uh, recalling again President Hinckley's words during the priesthood session of General Conference this year. Quote, there is no basis for racial hatred among the priesthood. If you have such feelings, go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness, close quote. And we would say, I think very safely, that President Hinckley isn't referring only to the priesthood brethren, but to the sisters and to the children and all who are members of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no place for racial hatred. There is no place for racial bias or privilege. We are, as Brother Brigham said, of one blood. We are of one people. We are all of Abraham. We are brothers and sisters. Hmm. And I must say, I was I was just on the edge of my seat, thrilled when 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 I was in the priesthood conference and heard uh, those words. So um, I too rejoice in those words. I sobbed in joy. I, I, I had uh, a pocket full of uh, paper towels <laughs> that I use as uh, handkerchiefs, and uh, I uh, dampened everyone. I soaked everyone. I was just crying with such joy. We need to heal. We need to be able to acknowledge, as they did in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, we need to acknowledge the realities of the past. We need to speak openly to the current realities of insensitivity and bigotry. And we need to be able to heal and move forward as true brothers and sisters. I, I wasn't in the priesthood session, obviously. But I got a call immediately after from a dear friend in California, and while I was on the phone with him, he told me what had happened. While I was on the phone with him, Darius called and left a message, which I still have on my answering machine, and I, I've, all of our families listened to it, but uh, Darius is just in tears and says, President Hinckley did it. He spoke directly to the issue. My husband uh, came home with very good notes on, on what had happened, and he read those to me, and I called one of my black friends and read them to her. And uh, a marvelous, marvelous step. Well, let me let me ask you guys. Um, I think uh, I think it's pretty. It's probably pretty safe to say that that the church has never been fully uh, responsible for a lot of this folklore. Because if you go to manuals and if you go to scripture. You know, or, or even if you go to a lot of general conference talks, you're not going to get a lot of this folklore. So, in some ways, you could say that the church isn't necessarily directly responsible for a lot of the folklore that's been persisted. On the other hand, a lot of members to this day still believe a lot of the folklore. Um, I, I, my daughter this year was taught the Curse of Cain in her Sunday school here in Logan, Utah. You know, my you know ten year old daughter, and so. Um, so you know you you mentioned you you wept during this priesthood session. It, clearly, it must have been out of anticipation or a hope that some type of statement would be made. And my my sort of question to you guys is: I would never ask you guys to counsel the brethren or to you know say what you think should be done, etc. But I will say, you know, do you have ideas of how among the membership, you know, what can be done? To, to sort of put a death nail in the coffin of 
of the folklore because even though statements can be made today saying, you know, don't be a racist today, you know, don't be mean to people today, I, I think there's it's still uh, ambiguous for a lot of people as to what to do with the folklore that they were taught because it could be that be nice, but that folklore still is true. And so do you guys have thoughts on what can be done to move well, the membership? You we didn't say, isn't it wonderful that this problem is behind us now? We said, what a wonderful step. <laughs> right. We're not finished. And, you know, the, we didn't talk about our documentary. We won't have time to talk about it. Uh, we can maybe do another interview about that sometime. But, but we, we hit the folklore very strongly. Uh, Darius confronted it as a black man in, in Utah in the 1960s. Uh, and and we talk about exactly the effects of all of that. And what I love about documentaries is that they show the faces of the people, so that you're not just hearing the words, but you get a sense that that the human face is such a strong call to us to take responsibility and to care. Um, the, I'll tell you what I personally do. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I teach the 14 and 15-year-olds. I know what the official manual says. I always look on the Internet, especially if I think, hmm, there's room in this lesson for somebody to do something. And there are several sites. Meridian Magazine has a site for gospel doctrine instruction that's sort of supplementary. Uh, there's a, a guy, Beardall, I don't, I don't remember his first name, who has gospel doctrine lessons, all supplementary. I always look at them sometimes to see if there's something I can use, but I'm always, because I'm so sensitized to these issues, I am always looking to see, is there some place where they could bring this in? Because I know, when we talk about Noah, I hope nobody's going to go to the, the idea of Noah cursing Ham and Canaan. And sure enough, there it was on, uh, I, I won't, I won't, yeah, I will say which side it was on. It was on Meridian Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I emailed the editor, <laughs> uh, and and I also saved it. And I did more than just email. Um, so I'm just telling you what I do personally. So I I looked at it and talked about the curse of Noah. I knew that was not in the official. I also believe it's it's a false doctrine and something that we've got to quit perpetuating. And uh, it it uh, it without saying priesthood restriction, it definitely was talking about the priesthood restriction. Uh, there was one talking about Joseph's wife's Athenus and saying, absolutely, she was a Semite. Well, that's speculation. I believe she was an Egyptian. I, I think the evidence is pretty darn clear that she was an Egyptian. And a certain fellow by the name of Nibley, uh, who had some fair credentials, said that she was an Egyptian. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the scriptures, you know, if we're going to have to fall back on something, it's not bad to fall back on the scriptures. They say she was the daughter of Potiphar, uh, sun god, priest, and Egyptian. So let's call the woman Egyptian. Yeah. Mm. And then the first lesson we taught this year in the Old Testament, called Thou Was Chosen Before Thou Was Born, ooh, dangerous territory, because what does that invite? They'd invite some of the quotes about valiancy and the preexistence. And Darius and I both got calls. I was in a lesson. Uh, this was one where I had a niece being blessed, and so I went to my sister's ward, and the teacher pulled out some quotes talking about valiancy and the preexistence and how our earth life reflects either a reward or a punishment for our premortal life, and our situation and circumstance reflects that reward or punishment. And I went to the bishop and said, I'm very uncomfortable with, with what was taught in Sunday school. But I, I went a further step than that. I, 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 
also went to some higher authorities listening. These are the lessons that are on the Internet. You cannot ignore that the Internet is going to be used by Sunday school teachers. We've got to deal with this. And to be honest, uh, in in my stake and in my ward, there's a very heavy emphasis to only teach what's in the manual today. And I always think of it as sometimes I, I, you know, I'm an elders corps instructor and I actually gave an entire lesson just last month on the blacks and the priesthood. I was so upset that my daughter was taught this. I just decided that I was going to take one of the lessons I was supposed to give and sort of twist it to address this issue very frankly. But it's interesting. So, so I, I often think about the instruction I've been given to limit the outside materials I use um, as a way to stifle my thought or my free expression. But it could just as easily have been implemented to keep stuff like this out of the lessons that well, can be and, brought. And I, I'm, you, I mean, you probably you wouldn't imagine me just sticking to a manual, and I don't, because I've got 14- and 15-year-olds, and the manual is boring. I, just to be really straight out blunt about it, sure. I've got. I want to teach these kids the gospel. I want them to love the gospel. I want them to look forward to coming to Sunday school. So I do everything I can to make it interesting. But because we have not been adequately instructed, so that we discern between truth and error, people can go out on the internet and find stuff and think that it's perfectly fine because some church leader said it back in the fifties, and it's not. And to answer the question further, John, what can we do? We can be informed. Uh, we can find what is true and what is false. And, and that takes some effort, uh, and it uh, is our responsibility. But uh, I think that's a responsibility we accepted in the preexistent war, where we were willing to stand with the Savior and to come here and to be responsible for our actions. We need to search out the truth. And simply because something is called folklore today, there are those that you rightly suggest would not know what is folklore and what is doctrine, and that needs to be searched out. Maybe the most horrendous statement from the past that I can think of uh, was a statement made by President John Taylor, wherein he, on at least two occasions, stated that blacks were here on the earth as representatives of Satan. Hmm. Now, you you can't get much worse than that, to say that blacks are here so that there can be a balance in all things and that we are here to represent Satan. Is it doctrinal? No. Will the brethren today support that statement? No. But it was made by a president of the church. So is that doctrine or is that folklore? That's folklore, and you need to search out the truth. You need to be guided by the Spirit of God to truth, to be able to recognize it, so that you can know what is truth and what is folklore. And let, I'm going to add just a little bit to that. Well, the, the way that Darius became aware that that particular quote by John Taylor was actually being circulated to teachers in church ed, the church education system was because of me, because I was an institute instructor, and I went to the church education symposium, and received supplementary material. Uh, I had not opened the supplementary material. Uh, I was teaching Doctrine and Covenants in Church History. I didn't open it until like January uh, when I was going to be teaching Section 76 of the DNC and decided, well, let's just see. It was still in its shrink wrap. I went and found it, opened it up, and turned to Section 76. I was teaching in Spanish, and my habit would be when I found something I wanted to translate, I would just 
move to my computer and start translating. So I started translating this quote, why does God not kill Satan because he needs him? He suffered the seed of Cain to come through the flood that Satan might have representation upon the earth. Hmm. And then I realized what it was and immediately called Darius and said, let me read you what's in my supplement for, for my institute class. And uh, this eventually got taken to much higher places, and, and uh, we don't know how it was ultimately dealt with, but we know that it was taken very seriously. Uh, my real, that to me was a testimony that I, I really believe that I was led to uh, open it at that time because I would recognize what was being taught, and I happened to be connected with people who would be able to take care of it, and that's exactly what happened. Hmm. What that says to me is that God is really aware of even just an insignificant little person like me in this mission. God is really aware that we have a need in this church to move forward, to move beyond what uh, the statements of the past brought us to, which was division and arrogance and and dangerous racial pride and division. Um, God cares about this. I believe that God communicated that to President Hinckley and that we heard a prophetic voice during the priesthood session and in, in the other talks given as well. And I don't think that that communication is going to stop. I think the army of those who are going to be aware that we are called to be a Zion society, we are called to love each other, and even ultimately to have all things in common and to not be able to bear the fact that some are poor and some are rich, but that we all want to be one in Christ. I think that, that, will, that we, the army will continue to grow until that happens, and God is behind it. So all sorts of people will have experiences like I had to discover there's false doctrine being taught here, and I need to bring it to somebody's attention so that we can become a religion that is really pure and undefiled. So this sort of brings me to a final question that I'd like to ask uh, both of you, if you don't mind. I'm very, very grateful, and I know our listeners are going to be very grateful for all this information you've shared with us. And the, the question that I have as I ponder the history that we've talked about is this. Um, you know, I've often asked myself why, I ask myself things like, you know, why doesn't, you know, President Hinckley, you know, stand up in front of the, the membership of the Church and General Conference and very specifically, you know, renounce the folklore. And I, and I ask myself, you know why? You know why? Why aren't we? Why don't we have a lesson once a year? Just like there's a lesson on faith, and we have a lesson on repentance, and we have a lesson on baptism and authority. You know why isn't there a race lesson, where you know the history is taught and the statements are made clear, and just you know no stone is left unturned, and all ambiguity is is removed. And you know it doesn't take me long to realize that there's probably really good reasons why that hasn't happened yet. You, you, could, you could say that 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that that would have caused people to flat out just leave the church because they would have disagreed with, uh, with statements that opposed racism. But, but if you think about even today and in, in, in the history we've talked about, the, this, isn't, you know, this isn't milk. This isn't lightweight history. When you, you know, this issue of blacks in the priesthood, as you go through the chronology, brings up all sorts of things that that a, a traditional Mormon who sort of had the correlated Sunday school set of instruction, you know, would be mind shocking to them from, from the fact that blacks were given the priesthood, but they didn't know about it 
to the fact that racist statements were made, to the fact that apostles and, and prophets disagreed, that they overturned sometimes each other's statements, um, that sometimes in the church things aren't clear and methodical and organized and premeditated, but instead it's line upon line and it's, and it's sometimes um, unclear and uncertain. Um, you know, so, so this... Um, you know, this history illustrates how, uh, you know, real and sometimes hard and challenging and mortal, even our church and our highest church leadership can be. I mean, we're talked about, we were taught about direct revelation, yet you wonder, where's the direct revelation? Why weren't, you know, Mormons leading the civil rights movement instead of trailing it? And so, you know, this is a tough issue, and I can totally empathize now with the brethren. I don't have anger anymore. I don't have bitterness. I only have pure empathy for trying to think about how they manage this large, diverse membership of the church on such a tough issue, such a tough, tough issue that can have such wide-ranging implications. And so my final question to both of you, and I'll, I'll throw it to Margaret first, and then we'll have Darius sort of end, is, you know, how... How can someone emerge from an, from not only an academic understanding of this history, but you know, for both of you, you know, living this history, how can someone emerge with the with the testimony intact, and how can someone avoid not cursing God, or cursing you know some of the brethren? T- tell our listeners, I, I don't want to say bear your testimony, but if you want to, go ahead, you know, tell us how you take all the stuff you know, all the stuff you've experienced and come out the end, maybe even with a stronger testimony um, than when you were younger. And and just sort of tell us how maybe some of us who have struggled um, can come to the same place of grace that, that both of you clearly ha- have come to. So, Margaret, you first. Oh, you're putting us in a really high position. <laughs> um, well, you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Don't don't think that we haven't. Well, let, let, I, I'm going to talk about Darius and and about. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll talk about several of the important men in my life. Maybe first about my husband, who uh, gave me a beautiful blessing when I, I. You mentioned the introduction that I'm a writer. I've been a writer for a long time and published a lot of books. Um, and I felt at one point in the temple that I really wanted my books to not just be award winners and, and uh, you know, have, have nice little things from my resume. I wanted them to make a difference. And I prayed that I would be able to do something that would, that would make a difference, that I would be able to use my talents in a way that, that would matter. And my husband, we start our school years off with him giving priesthood blessings, and he gave me a blessing that I hadn't told him about this desire I had. And in the blessing, he said, the desire of your heart is going to be answered. You will be given a voice where you will be able to talk about the things that are of of great importance. Now, I had no idea what I was going to confront as I began working with Darius. Uh, Not just Darius's stubbornness, which is legendary. (laughs) Oh, she got you there. She got you there. the The issues are so hard. And I had I didn't know about everything that was there. I had read a little bit about Jane James and a little bit about Elijah Abel. I had read Lester Bush's article, but I came as an absolutely new kid. I had no black friends. 
I had been raised in Provo, Utah. I had been in uh, Indiana and Illinois briefly, but we certainly we, we didn't have any black friends who were, you know, part of the household. So I I was coming into this so absolutely new. And there came a point where I was reading all of the stuff that had been said and just felt almost a despair because it was so huge. How on earth can we tell the stories of these black Latter-day Saints in the face of all these terrible things that were said? How can we do this? And I got a phone call. The phone just rang at that moment, and it was Darius. And he said, Margaret, I, for some reason, I just feel like you need me to bear my testimony to you. I just feel like you need to be strengthened. And he bore the testimony that I've heard him bore, bear so many times, and it does not matter. I, I, this is something I know and love about Darius. We've been in with audiences that have been very antagonistic to the church, with audiences that have been very with us, with audiences, uh, you know, any audience. He is bold. If, if they say, why did you join the church? The words are almost always the same. I received a testimony that this is the restored gospel, and I was to join. And uh, he, he talks about his conversion experience, and that has held him up, and he offered it to me to hold me up. And that has been a tremendous help um, as I've become acquainted, and Darius and I have had the wonderful privilege of becoming dear friends with Marion D. Hanks, who was so involved in this issue. His testimony has bolstered me. But the other thing is that we have had miracle upon miracle. I mentioned one little thing where I happened to open my institute supplement to a section that needed to be addressed, probably the only thing in that whole supplement that was a huge problem. And I had been absolutely prepared to recognize it, and I had the connections to deal with it. But others where um, some of which are, are too sacred to even talk about, but where in the midst of all of what's a nice word <laughs> I, I i i'm i'm thinking of a word that that i i don't think you want on your podcast um <laughs> Chaos. in the midst of all of all of the excrement of all of the terrible smelly things from our past the waste that is still lingering with us the scent is still there that god sends us a pillar of flower or a pillar of fire and a, a cloud to guide us there are these moments where we have a miracle and we see God is with you and and don't worry about it things are going to be fine keep walking keep doing what you need to be doing it doesn't matter who said this thing God is still God and God is in charge Jesus Christ is still Jesus Christ and your your command is to keep going. To to you're engaged in the battle. You promised that you would stay. Stay. Hmm. Very good. My turn, Darius. I'm I'm not stubborn at all compared to Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just a breath of fresh air. I need to get along with. For me, John, the answer, uh, how do we get to where we need to be for any of us, is, is, is a simple answer. And that answer is love. Um, we can look at the past and should. We should know the facts 
we should know the truth and be able to address that truth directly and honestly. But whatever we do, we need to do that with love in our hearts. It's significant that when the Savior is asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he, you know, continues uh, later saying, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. Uh, whatever it is we're about, it ought to be done with love. And and that's the key uh, for me, and I would offer for all of us, since it's not my admonition, it's the Savior's. We are to love one another. We are to have that compassion, uh, that charity within us. Uh, for without that, we are nothing. We can endure the truths of the past, the realities of today. We can endure it by having the love of the Savior in our hearts. Wonderful. Well, I think that is. Uh, those are two beautiful testimonies that I know um, many, if not all, of my listeners will be very grateful to have uh, heard. So thank you both for sharing that. You're welcome. And thank you. Now, uh, before we go, I think I want to just have you talk quickly about two things. One is the Genesis group. Uh, I don't think we got to actually talk about its relevance today. If anyone... Is there anything anyone should know about the Genesis Group is the first question. And secondly, I'd love you guys to talk about the upcoming documentary you're working on and the support that you're hoping to get. So go ahead. Well, I'll do the Genesis Group, and Margaret can speak to the documentary. Uh, the Genesis Group was established uh, on October 19, 1971, under the direction of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, to be a support organization for black Latter-day Saints and their friends. It has never been racially exclusive. Uh, the uh, organization was initially called a dependent branch. Uh, we were dependent on priesthood uh, in the state uh, because uh, blacks did not have the priesthood in 1971. But uh, we were not to take the place of a home ward or branch. We were to be sort of a safety net, a supplement, um, uh, a resource to bishops, state presidents, branch presidents, and the lay members to try and hold on to our members of color. And uh, back then, uh, 1971, some of us were still considered or considering ourselves Negro, and others were considering ourselves Black. But whatever the name, the term, we were there trying to hold on as Latter-day Saints. And for those converts that were joining the church in those years, uh, for them not to come in and be blindsided. The organization continues today. Uh, the mandate is somewhat changed, and the priesthood is now available to all worthy males. But uh, we are an uh, official unit of the church, a budgeted unit of the church. Um, the president of the, the group is Donald Harwell, and um, he is a good man, and we are trying to be a support still to Black Latter-day Saints and their friends. We meet once a month, which has always been the case, and it's on the first Sunday of the month. And it's at 7 p.m., so as not to conflict with any other church meeting. And that's the group that meets in Utah. There are other Genesis groups uh, outside of the state of Utah. But for the local group, those in the state of Utah who would like to join us or if they are visiting from out of state, again, it's the first Sunday of each month, 7 p.m. The location is 6710 South on 1300 East. And all are welcome. In, and, in Salt Lake uh, City? Probably about... 
Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. Yes. Okay. And uh, the membership uh, is uh, indeed varied. It's diverse. Probably 60, 40, 60 percent people of color and 40 percent white. And people of color because we have African-African, African-Caribbean, uh, African-American, um, Asian, uh, Hispanic, uh, Native American. Um, truly, it is as the world is uh, a diverse population, but we are truly brothers and sisters. And, and it doesn't hurt the tithing is only 7.5% fixed. <laughs> Variable rates on request. That part was a joke. And when Darius said that, when we were dedicating a monument to Jane James and Elder David B. Haight was there, Elder Haight added something. He forgot to mention the excise tax, which is 2.5%. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But uh, the Genesis organization is an official budgeted unit of the church. Okay, very good. Documentary. We are really excited about the documentary. It's called Nobody Knows, Colin, The Untold Story of Black Latter-day Saints. And it's one, uh, we go a little bit into the history, but it's much more about uh, Black Latter-day Saints right now. And it does, it, we, we, we do hit things like the horseshoe prophecy. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but no. uh, it's something that I heard when I was a teenager in my home in Provo, Utah, and my home teacher came and, and told us about this terrible thing that had been prophesied by John Taylor, which was that blacks were going to come out of Watts, California, and invade the temple, and blood oh. would run down the streets. Or out of Los Angeles. I don't think they had Watts at the time. I connect it with the Watts right. Anyway, it, the whole thing had been uh, made up and the church disavowed it, but the whole idea that we just were terrified with hordes of Negroes coming to Utah and you know raping the women and having blood run down the streets, the potential that we have of moving ourselves into hysteria because we don't, we are different from other people and, and we don't, uh, we, we haven't assimilated others into our society. And at that point, we were, Provo, Utah was the largest state, er, the largest city in the whole United States without a resident black family. Um, Darius hit that one head on, and we talk about that. We talk about other things. The people that we've, we have just amazing footage. We've interviewed Pastor Chip Murray in Los Angeles, California. His congregation, the First AME Church, was founded by Biddy Smith Mason, who was a slave of Mormon converts, came across the plains as a slave. Um, he had long conversations with President Hinckley, and this is one where we get very tight-lipped because there are really significant things that came out of those conversations that he talks about, uh, wonderful things that will be tremendous bridge builders. And then uh, we have interviews with Martin Luther King III. We, we have non-Mormons, ex-Mormons, current Mormons, so we've tried to really have a balance and to tell the, the full story. Uh, Richard Dutcher is the executive producer, and of course he's, his reputation is, is well-earned. Uh, I, I, I thought States of Grace was, was just marvelous. Um, uh, Alex Nibley and uh, Darius and I, uh, Dana Gerald, are others involved in this project, we anticipate that it, as we've seen what we actually have, we've, we've just been so thrilled. Uh, we do need donations. Uh, we've we got a good grant, and we've had some really fine donations so that we've, able, we've been able to get the footage we have thus far. But uh, we've got the footage, now we need to edit it. And so if anybody wants to 
make a donation, probably the best way to do that, because we do have an umbrella organization that takes the donations and uh, makes them tax deductible, uh, the best way to do it is to contact me at uh, probably my BYU email address. Go ahead and read which it. Is, pardon me? Go ahead and read it out, yeah. Okay, and they have to remember the underscore, not a hyphen, but it's Margaret, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T underscore Young, Y-O-U-N-G, at byu.edu. So Margaret underscore, not a hyphen. It won't get to me if it's a hyphen. And I will include that on the blog as well. I appreciate that, John. Well, I just want to um, thank you both for your time. This podcast is officially run about two hours and uh, 13 minutes. So this is longer than I told you guys it would be. So um, the history has been Does wonderful. Does mean you're buying lunch? Yes. I'll be right over. <laughs> okay, good. The check's in the mail. Yeah, I'll be right over. Uh, right. <laughs> But um, I just want to thank Darius and Margaret. Thank you both for coming on. I know our listeners are going to love this, so thank you so much. Well, thank you, John. Best of luck. And uh, to our listeners, uh, thank you for tuning in. Please feel free to jump up on mormonstories.org and leave us your comments. Thank Darius and Margaret if you want, or if you want to ask them questions. I'm sure they wouldn't mind jumping on the blog now and again to maybe just read what's been said and, and make a comment or two. Um Please tell your friends about this podcast and share it. Uh, you know, if any of you are thinking, what can we do to dispel the myths? Well, uh, as they said, getting educated is a great way. So please tell your friends about this podcast. Please share it. And uh, I'm going to work on getting the, the slides and, and a video cast up so that you can actually have a visual representation and see these quotes firsthand. But thank you for tuning in to Mormon Stories. Please come back again soon. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot and take care.